Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty at stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. This episode is a conversation with Dr. Amy Hildreth. Amy is a board-certified emergency physician and a lieutenant in the United States Navy. She is an assistant clinical professor at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and serves as an assistant program director in emergency medicine and as the emergency medicine simulation director at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. Amy received her medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences and did her emergency specialty training at the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency. In case it's not obvious from that pedigree, Amy is a badass. She's also somebody I'm very proud to call a close friend. We dig into some great concepts in this episode, including notably the importance of thinking deeply through complicated situations before they arise, and building systems that minimize unnecessary opportunities for failure. Interestingly, Bruce Willis also comes up. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. In addition to these standard disclaimers, Dr. Hildreth's position requires a separate statement clarifying her views and opinions, which we will play right now. The views expressed in this podcast um, are mine and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Navy, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. All that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. Amy, I'm so happy to be talking with you about this, and thank you for agreeing to, to come on this podcast and dig into this stuff with me. Yeah, of course. I'm looking forward to it. Um, we were looking through some ideas of what to talk about at the beginning, and, and you mentioned that there was something that really got you started thinking about this, a, a moment or a case or an event. I don't know if you want to start talking about that. What is it that made you first start thinking about how to function under pressure? Sure. So it actually happened before I even went to medical school. I was out with some friends in Baltimore, and um, Baltimore has public, the public transportation system is called a light rail, and it's all above ground. We got off the train, got back to the parking lot at the end of the day, and my friend Kurt did not see that there was another train coming as he was getting off the train and started walking across the track and was hit and pinned underneath that second train right in like we all were just watching um so there was probably 15 or so of my friends but then another you know 20 30 people that were just on the train or waiting for another train or in the parking lot I can still close my eyes and see his him getting hit and his red baseball hat like got pushed up into the air got like knocked off his head and I can still see it like floating down to the ground (laughs) it was (laughs) So completely surreal. Kurt is is fine, by the way. He just got married. He's doing great. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> but it, we didn't know that at the time. It felt like years before any of us sort of thought of what to do. 
And I was the first one to be like, well, you know, we have to call 911. We have to talk to the operators. We have to try to talk to him and see if he's okay. We have to start kind of getting this moving. It seemed like everyone else in the crowd was just completely frozen. And that was the first sort of experience where I was like, someone, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to take charge. Like all it takes is, is being a little bit firm, a little bit loud, trying to direct people to make sure that stuff is happening. Anyone can do it. It's just really that being able to kind of step up to the plate, get over the shock, ignore the blood and figure out what you need to do to make things better or start tr- at least trying to make things better. Wow, I had never heard that story before. That's that's very intense. I'm, I'm glad to hear that your friend is okay. When you started moving in that minute, when you realized it was sort of going to be up to you to start taking charge of that, the, the way you just described it with, you know, you have to ignore the blood and understand what your first moves are and, and just get going. You know, is that how that felt to you then? Had you, had you thought about those ideas before that? Because that seems to be a pretty... Um, sophisticated approach to an initial emergency. I guess it's hard to say if that is how I thought about it then or now. It is sort of that getting over that initial block of like where everyone is standing around in shock with their, you know, tongues hanging out there and just starting to get moving. And I, as a, so I have a three-year-old and I talk about this like with parents a lot, like when their kids, they say they can't handle accidents, they say they can't handle emergencies, but when their kids get hurt, like they run to help them right away um, mm-hmm. because it's just, that's your just natural reaction is just to go for it. And that doesn't always happen with just other people, but I think it's very similar that just now this person is hurt, so we have to go to them and try to help them. It's almost like you're not thinking through the rest of the, well, I'm not going to know what to do. Well, I'm not going to know how to fix it. Well, you know, it could be really bad. I don't want to see that. And just kind of ignoring all that and just going back to that sort of primal, like they need help. I need to help them. I think, you know, now I know ignore the blood, stop the bleed, get the tourniquets, you know, fix the airway. At that time, I don't know that I knew all that. Um, I knew to try to talk to him, to try to ask if he was okay. I knew to call 911. That was that was probably about about it, but that was, you know, enough. That's a great start, absolutely. And and do you think that we all so so it sounds like you think we have all of us that innate sense of just respond somehow, just go into action. I think um, so. You know, it's when you start overthinking that sometimes people don't respond, uh, whether like, oh, is it really my place to help? Is it is there someone else who's more equipped to help? Is there someone else who, you know, has more experience or uh, better credentials to help? But I think that kind of sense of, no, I'm here and I'm able and I'm going to help. And if someone tells me to stop helping because they're doing a better job, then I'll stop. But until that happens, I'll see what I can do. I, I love that idea that the default response is to jump in and help. And it's only when we get in our own way or overthink it that we don't we don't sort of obey that default response. So maybe what it takes is just learning how to train more of that default response and getting better at that. Like like you said, sort of upgrading, hey, I just want to help to, I'm going to help by breaking it down into pieces. I'm going to secure the airway and stop the bleed and apply a tourniquet. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think that there's so many stories of heroes that it's just like, I was just, you know, doing, I was just trying to help. I was just trying to stop what was happening or whatever. And I, I think people do want to help and want to kind of provide that aid to absolutely when other people need it 
Absolutely. I, I think you're totally right. I think everybody wants to feel like they are capable of providing for their neighbors and their families and being able to be there in times of an emergency. Had you, when you were growing up, is that something that you and your family ever talked about, like how to do that kind of a thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I, uh, I never, um, I didn't grow up like interested in medicine or wanting to be a doctor. I didn't decide to go to medical school until college. Sort of shied away from illness stuff or blood stuff or anything too gross. Um, I would not have been the, the go-to emergency fixer. As a middle child, I was good at kind of standing back and seeing what was going to happen with my go get him older sister and then my like younger sister sort of doing her own thing. So I think I developed more of the ability to kind of uh, observe and see what was going on all around me. I don't feel like I grew up <laughs> responding to emergencies or, or helping in emergent situations. And so after this event that you were describing with your friend, did that, did that change the way that you think about things? Or what was the arc for you between that and going into emergency medicine? So I did work in an ER at that time. I was a tech in the emergency department at GW Hospital in DC. So felt a little bit of like responsibility of like, oh, I work in an ER, so I should be able to handle this emergency. Although I had no training in any, like I wasn't an EMT. I wasn't, you know, in medical school yet. I, I had no real uh, emergency response training. But I think that being around those kind of situations and that sort of positive feeling of helping and, you know, knowing what to do in an emergency definitely helped push me more towards emergency medicine in the kind of spectrum of medicine. At that point, I already wanted to go to medical school. And and was there somebody that maybe this was early in your medical school career or when you were a tech in that emergency department, was there somebody in particular that you that you observed and that you looked up to as, as how they were doing their um, responding to an emergency? Definitely my uncle. My uncle Jim Scott is an ER doctor and just a wonderful human, cool, calm, and collected. And always seems to know all the answers to everything. Now, I know as a human that he cannot possibly know all the answers to everything. <laughs> but in reality, it seems like he always knows all the answers to everything. Whenever he um, is running a code, he's one of the people that can do it with kind of a quiet, calm presence and, you know, keep the volume in the room very low and keep everyone on their jobs and sort of really maintain that leadership without getting loud or getting excited, which is such an amazingly cool quality that I'm still working on. <laughs> but um, certainly my uncle Scotty has always been someone that I looked up to. I want to fast forward just a little bit. You've had a, an interesting mix of training, both from your residency in emergency medicine and then from your time in the Navy. What are some of the similarities and differences you found between how both of those groups try to prepare somebody to function during an emergency? I, I really think that idea of being able to um, maintain your composure and kind of follow an appropriate algorithm. I think it's heavily promoted in, in both areas. So in emergency medicine, we're taught our ABCDEs that you're supposed to work on 
airway, then breathing, then circulation. In the military, they use the TCCC pathway. So they put X before ABC for exsanguination. Um, the idea being that you should be using tourniquets earlier. There are obviously different approaches depending on what resources you have available. So in an emergency department, like Mass General in Boston, where you have every single resource possibly imaginable, every specialist possibly imaginable, um, you're going to practice differently than if you're in a field hospital in the Middle East, or if you are like a medic out on the field for the military, or, or if you're an EMT in the States, or if you are an ER doctor in like a smaller, um, more rural department where you don't have the same access to the same kind of resources. Resources and your practice environment really affect what you're able to do, but the basics of your kind of algorithm and how you're going to approach it don't really change. It just changes kind of which ways you can go with it. So you're sort of describing in a sense the idea that we will that wherever we practice, we use these algorithms and we use these structures that we set up around ourselves to help us think more clearly in times of stress with the idea that we offload some of the, well, I guess we, we decrease the cognitive load we personally carry by relying on these structures that we've built ahead of time. You said it, everyone said it. I mean, no one gets smarter in a code, no one gets smarter in an emergency. So having Having these pathways to fall back on can help us when your adrenaline's high and you're not thinking clearly um, and you need to sort of still be able to uh, get things going in the right direction. That's great. I, I've honestly actually never heard that, that idea that nobody gets smarter in a code. I think that that's really good and obviously very true that you don't, you don't come up with new ideas. You don't come up with new pathways in the middle of a high stress situation like that. Um, yes. Whether someone is having a heart attack or bleeding from their brain or they can't breathe or they've been shot or you're being shot at. Yes, you uh, need to practice and know what to do and have an easy way to remember that because it's not going to make it any easier. What about uh, you were describing this a little bit when you were when you were describing your friend getting hit by the train, that first minute, that inertia that sort of kicks in. How um, how have you found training for that first step? to be different between emergency residency and the military training? The military is interesting because we're taught to follow orders and kind of go for it. And whereas in emergency medicine, they spend all this time teaching us how to critically think, how to process, how to um, make sure that we're not missing the you know, crazy esoteric zebras and make sure that we're handling everything from all facets. The military training is focused on if there's an accident, you check for major bleeding from extremities and then you put a tourniquet on. They learn how to do that and they do that and they do it well and they don't go through the process that we would think through as a doctor of, you know, how much bleeding is it? Are there pulses? Is there vascular or neurologic compromise? Are there other injuries we should be addressing first? Like those kinds of things. In the military, you're just sort of following your pathway. And I think that data is sort of showing that, especially in these kind of high stress emergencies, that probably following the pathway is just better than trying to divert too much from it. And so I think the military 
might actually be better at that than ER doctors, at least in that first initial kind of minute of what do you need to do? You just need to kind of get going and start following commands. You don't need to stop and think. You don't need to stop and, you know, look around. You just need to go. There definitely is some a lot of strength in that approach to the first part of a of any case, whether it's a code or a, or a trauma or what, which is just just start moving, just start moving and start tackling the first the first things out of the gate. I do think that it's important whenever there's any kind of emergency for me to stop and take a deep breath. I don't think that that moment of of pause is going to cause any major delays in care, and I do think that it can help sort of calm me down and relax me. You know, my initial approach trying to meld everything I've learned is to take a deep breath to remember my algorithms and like you said just just to start moving the other aspect that I focused on a lot more in the military is personal safety when patients roll into the emergency department you know if they're being violent or aggressive you might think about your safety and the safety of your staff but you're usually not too worried that they're coming in carrying a bomb or that they're going to pull a weapon or something on you. The general idea is that you're there to help them. And most people seem to appreciate that. That's not true in the military. And it's not true, even just for like our first responders, our EMTs and our EMS here in the state, having a little more of that self-awareness of are you going to get hurt yourself when you go in to help? Um, And what else do you need to be looking out for? That I think is harped on a lot more in the military than emergency medicine training. So let's shift gears slightly and and move forward in time a little bit. So we're in the middle of a case and and this case could again either be in your military locations or it could be stateside in one of the hospitals. And you've made it through that first couple minutes. You're starting to get into the steady state of the case and something unexpected happens, something goes wrong. How do you reset your focus and reset yourself to to keep moving? I mean, I think what we've been taught is to go back to the beginning, right? So if something happens unexpectedly, it's almost like a whole new emergency and you just go back, go back to where you came from, go back to your ABCs. We do get in a lot of trouble in medicine and in the military. Uh, When we think that we're on one path and it turns out that you're you're actually not and you instead of just stopping and redirecting you still try to push down the same path that you were on being able to appreciate that you need to pivot but i think the basics of that are really just going back to your going back to your algorithms going back to your pathway and and looking at it with fresh eyes um, which can be hard. You're describing in some sense what is talked about in the idea of anchoring, right? Which is that you think you're doing one thing and that that belief in what you're doing blinds you to certain other possibilities. And you start using uh, a model and you start absorbing facts to support that model as opposed to to consider something else that might be happening. Pivoting as a potential antidote to that, right? The idea that you're going to shift gears other than go back to the beginning and started ABCs. Is there anything else you personally do when you're trying to pivot in the middle? And you could answer that, I guess, either for yourself or for if you're leading a team that you're resuscitating somebody and you're trying to pivot the whole team. I mean, I think it it takes acknowledgement that something has gone wrong, which sometimes can be hard to do. And hopefully in your team, you have the dynamics where people feel like they can speak up and tell you something's going wrong. Like, 
oh, by the way, the SAT 70, oh, by the way, um, <laughs> the patient's not responding anymore. Because sometimes those things are, are, are myth and sort of hard to appreciate. You put the medical student on feeling the pulse and then they don't feel comfortable saying, oh, by the way, I don't feel a pulse anymore. You know, that's a problem. The first step would be being the kind of team leader that people feel like they can talk to, that everyone feels like they can speak up. So sort of saying that from the beginning, because if you again, are relying on yourself to manage everything, that's not effective leadership. Do you actually say something about that at the beginning of a complex case? Like, hey, team, I want to hear if there's any differences of opinion. Or is that more like something you do over time is that you build yourself up as a leader that is approachable and easy to talk to? So I think both. I do, if I have time, love to assign roles at the beginning of a complex case, a code or a trauma, as you know that we should, because that makes it easier. And then taking the time to say, anyone please speak up if anything changes or um, you notice anything. And then asking too, when something, when you notice things aren't going great, you know, does anybody else have any other ideas? Does What does everyone think? And taking the time to sort of summarize the case periodically okay, at this point, we have a 75-year-old man who came in with chest pain. It looks like he's having a heart attack, and now his heart rate's 30. So I'm going to place the pads and give atropine and have we called cardiology, and does anyone else have other thoughts? As opposed to just sort of having it all going on in your mind, and no one else knows sort of where you're at and what you're thinking. So I think that team communication is really vital. And it's definitely something that we we drill, and you and I drilled that together, you know, over our years in residency, for sure. Uh, I, there's a, a number of sim cases we were on together that I can think of, and real cases, obviously, too. You know, it's an interesting time of the year uh, in emergency medicine in the States because it's early in the year, and a lot of our residents, the doctors that are training to be full-fledged emergency doctors, are sort of assuming more responsibility. And you recently took on the role of an mm-hmm. assistant program director. How are you teaching these up-and-coming senior residents who are, who are now starting to take over running these cases? How are you teaching them these skills? Or maybe is there anything particular you're you're working with your teams on about this? So you mentioned simulation. So part of my job is that I also uh, run the simulation curriculum. So once a month, we have a four or five hour session down in the Sim Center where we go through cases. We get to give the residents an opportunity to show how they would take care of a very sick person in a controlled environment. Uh, this allows us as faculty to like directly observe them without actually having to worry that the patient's really dying. And it allows the residents to have a little bit of the pressure taken off uh, as they kind of go through it, but still gives them the chance to go through the motions. Again, sort of more of a low stakes environment. One of the best ways to teach is through through simulation, letting them have the opportunity to sort of try and, and honestly fail a little bit where we can sort of correct them. I think one of the fun things about simulation is, is that it's it is lower stakes and lower pressure, but it's not zero pressure, right? Zero pressure is not enough pressure to really practice these things. You need to have some pressure on that, whether that's the social pressure of performing well in front of your team or, you know, extra pressure from added noise and distraction and things like that, because you have to, you have to train how you think under that pressure. And there's also the idea of what you said, which is that if we're doing this right, they should be failing some of the time at it, right? We should be celebrating when the resident 
or when our team that we're training with fails to execute the thing because it exposes something we can get better at, right? So there's that idea of like, like congratulations, we killed this patient. Now, now let's go figure out why that happened and what we're going to do about it. Exactly. Um, if you if you're only giving residents opportunities to excel, then they're not going to learn anything. So giving them a really hard case um, that they don't know exactly what to do and allowing them to kind of work through that and try to figure it out um, can be really helpful. And exactly like you said, I mean, simulation. So no one is going to die, but everyone is going to judge you. So um, <laughs> that's a great T-shirt. It is. It is. uh it is sometimes even worse than a real patient where you're the only doctor there and none of your peers judge you. Um, and they're probably going to be fine, even if you don't do the best job. Um, but simulation, all your peers are watching, your, your faculty's watching, you're being graded. So I wonder what you think that maybe somebody who's listening to this that's not an emergency doctor or not an emergency resident, but but somebody who's very interested in learning how to apply knowledge under pressure in their own life, but that doesn't have access to a sim lab, for instance, do you have any advice for that person about how she or he might be able to train some of these same ideas? I mean, I think you can run through scenarios in your mind, even if you're not able to act them out with um, plastic models and, you know, hi-fi equipment. Um, just actually doing the mental exercise of someone collapses in front of me, what am I gonna do? Can be, I think, really helpful. I teach my residents, you know, you should be, when you're going through your procedures or through your algorithms, you should actually be going through the steps mentally in your mind like you're doing it. Um, and then if you have the tools to practice, you should be practicing exactly like you would when you're actually going to do it on a real patient. The more fidelity you can get, the better. But even just sort of that mental exercise can be helpful. When you walk into, when I, when I walk into public spaces, I look for the AEDs now, like, and it's sort of just habit and a good way to kind of start thinking of like, what would I do if something happened? You can go from like, where are the exits to like, where's the emergency response equipment to like, what are my communication capabilities? Like starting to think a little bit more uh, about all those aspects in the public spaces that you go can be sort of useful. Sort of useful and, and in my opinion, in my strange opinion, very fun, right? I think you're totally right. Like AEDs and exits, great things to look for anywhere that you go. Uh, and explains a lot of why I'm constantly looking around when I'm, I'm out in public spaces. <laughs> I also think there's this, there's this idea that comes, which is a similar thing to what you're saying from Stoic philosophy that, that talks about thinking through the worst thing that could possibly happen. And so both Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, two of the key, and actually also Epictetus, the, the main three Stoic philosophers, talk a lot about this idea of getting comfortable thinking about bad things happening, right? So getting comfortable thinking about, uh, at, at one extreme, actually death. Uh, and there's this Stoic idea of memento mori, remembering that you're mortal. And to me, that plays into the same idea of going through simulation, which is to think through the worst thing that can happen in a situation and start thinking to yourself, how could I and my team take care of this right now? Is that something that you drill with, with your folks as well? I mean, 
Definitely. Exactly. What is the worst possible thing? And then how to take that down, down a notch, down a notch. There are like all different avenues, right? So you could have like a mass shooting versus like a power outage at the hospital versus like major environmental disaster, or even just three heart attack patients come in at the same time and you only have one cardiologist. So anything that kind of overwhelms your resources can be a huge emergency and a huge disaster. And so starting to think about how you would handle that. But even for just an people every day, like how you would handle if your car broke down or how you would handle there's a shooting a place that you're at, how you would handle if someone goes down in front of you, how you would handle uh, drowning. We were just at a pool party with 20 children, just like thinking through in every situation that you're in. And there's some of them that you can sort of drill for and prepare for prepare for and think about. And there's some that you cannot, but at least having that exercise uh, and going through it, you'll be more prepared for it. It can be overwhelming if you're just starting thinking about this, right? If you're on the, the path towards going into emergency care or not at all, and you're just starting to think about how you behave under pressure and under emergencies, you don't have to start by thinking about there's a mass shooting, three heart attacks, and a you know, bomb going off at the same time, right? Start with little things, start putting out little fires and thinking about how you're going to manage smaller things, which are challenging, but, but not necessarily overwhelming, but get in the habit of thinking about those things ahead of time and training them and then start flexing those muscles and start working into them. I think there's a reason why we have, you know, graduated responsibility in our training built in as one of the core features of it, right? We start working on the little injuries and the minor emergencies before we throw people in the in the deep end of running a cardiac arrest. ER doctors or hospital administrators, city planners that like, what's the worst thing going to be versus everyday people? Totally different, but at least being able to think it through and what is the biggest emergency you could personally handle and how could you help out if those things happen. Along those same lines, thinking in this case about people that that maybe are going to a different path in emergency medicine, is there anything, any book or resource or talk that, that you would want to have be required reading or watching for everybody? You know, what comes to mind is kind of the basics of the Stop the Bleed course, which is a wonderful program that unfortunately, you know, was kind of a response to the kind of mass shootings and, and mass casualty events that we've had too many of in the States. I, I think everyone should know uh, how to put a tourniquet on. I think if more people had them or had access to them, uh, we'd probably be better off. I think they're going to start being put around public places just like AEDs are more and more over the next years. Stop the Bleed is kind of the the layperson's course, but anybody could could look on on YouTube um, or you know find find the medical person that you know and ask them how exactly do you do it. It's not incredibly complicated, but if the first time you have to do it, it's because someone's leg is bleeding out. There's an opportunity for failure. There's a chance to do it wrong. That's a that's a great way to put that. And first off, we will we will post a video, a YouTube video about how to put a tourniquet on in the show notes for this podcast. But that idea that you're saying about there's an unnecessary opportunity for failure and how can you build training in and start thinking about ways to eliminate unnecessary opportunities for failure, things that you don't have to expose yourself to. 
Exactly. Like how can we improve the system so we don't have those system failures, those personal failures, and we make it easier for everyone to succeed. Amy, as you think about your own development as an ER doctor, both in terms of your ability to lead teams and your ability to personally provide care, what are you working on right now? How are you trying to get better? I was talking about the simulation center. Um, I make sure that I am at least doing my mental exercises, if not actually practicing running cases and running procedures so that I am equipped to do them. Um, we have procedures in emergency medicine that we and we train to do, but we rarely ever have to do them, which is a good thing. Things like doing a C-section on a woman who has just died to save a baby's life, save the mother's life. Things like cutting open someone's neck if you can't get a breathing tube into their mouth and down their trachea that way down there putting a balloon down someone's esophagus um, to stop them from throwing up massive quantities of blood um, these are things that fortunately we only rarely have to do most of the procedures themselves are not super complicated but again when they when this emergency patient comes in, you want to be able to handle the the emergency at hand and be able to do that procedure, even though you might not have ever actually done it on a real patient, even though you might not have thought about doing it in some time. So making sure that we're drilling and considering these life-saving but rarely used procedures, I think is really important. So thinking through these low frequency, but very you know, mission critical moves that I you sometimes think, have to yeah. make. Yeah. And that's, that's in some sense analogous to what you're recommending for people not in emergency medicine, which is think through how to put a tourniquet on, think through how to do CPR and how you'd respond to a person down, right? I think for most people that is the same idea of a low frequency, but high stakes event. One of the wonderful and challenging parts about being an emergency physician is that we go up to bat against these scenarios constantly, many times a shift, many times a week. And that allows us to train on them. But there's still, no matter where you are in that curve, there's always these events that are low frequency, high stakes. And and it sounds like your advice is to think through those on a pretty regular basis. As we come to the close of this conversation, is there anyone else that you would want to hear on this podcast? Anyone that, that you'd want to hear their opinion about how they function under pressure? Really, can't think of an ER doctor that I wouldn't want to ask the question to. Like, I don't know, is this like pie in the sky? Like getting to talk to like Bruce Willis or like other actual people? Bruce, uh, Bruce Willis in particular? Well, yeah, like he's always saving the world, right? <laughs> like, awesome. You don't think? Like, anyways. Uh, I, That's the best answer for that, I think. <laughs> I mean, what? who else would you really want? <laughs> All right. Well... It seems to me that the three sort of key things, the three key takeaways from this that we talked about are are the ideas that at the beginning of an emergency, at the beginning of a crisis, do whatever it takes to get moving. Rely on your algorithms, train your algorithms, and get into them as fast as possible to minimize that downtime at the beginning. Along those lines, we talked about the importance of doing mental simulation when there's, well, doing hi-fi simulation when it's available, and even when it's not, doing mental simulation to think through how you'd respond in a situation and to start by thinking about 
maybe small things that you can handle and work your way outward from there until you get to the point where you're thinking about the absolute worst thing that could happen and how you and your team could handle that. And then ultimately to identify things that are unnecessary opportunities for failure and to train and overtrain and build systems to try to take those off the table. Anything else jump out at you as sort of final lessons for people? People always say like, oh, I couldn't do that. I couldn't, uh, I wouldn't know what to do in an emergency. Like I, I wouldn't know how to handle things. Like how do you do that? And I think that everyone really can. And I think we all have the ability to, to step up and to help. And we want to step up and help. It's just kind of getting over that initial barrier of like, will I be able to, will I be useful? I think everyone has the ability to be useful during an emergency. And it's not, it's not rocket science. Um, You just need to exactly get over that initial block, that initial pause, that initial shock, and just, just start going. The rest of it will, will come. Amy, thank you so much for being a part of this and for talking talking with us and being on this podcast. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure to get to talk to you. (laughs) It was so wonderful to talk to you. I'll talk to you anytime. We can't record it every time, though. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.